0: Hey, hello, welcome to Hollywood Party. No, Carol for the last time. I'm not putting on a toga. Just, geez, drop it already. I'm glad you're back. This week, we're going to be looking at a legendary party boy of old Hollywood, George Cukor. Grab a cocktail and join the party. Party Boy was born July 7th, 1899, in New York. George Dewey Cukor would correct anyone who mispronounced his last name. Corps as in Cucumber, was his note to people. One of his friends, Garson Cannon, would just call him Goddamn Corps, a play on his initials GDC. Some sort of financial misfortune caused his family to move to America from Hungary in 1884. Sundays were always a big deal for George, And that started at his grandparents' house, where the entire family would gather for dinner. This is where George learned to push second helpings on his guests. He was notorious for trying to fatten up his leading ladies when they were in someone else's picture. The dinners at his grandparents' were chaotic in the best possible way. Four different languages were spoken at the table. Hungarian, English, German, and French. Never Yiddish. His family thought that was for the poor Jews. With that note of snobbery, his family was not devout. Pork was okay at dinner and high holidays just meant no school for kids. It was very common at that time for first and second generation kids to want to assimilate. George did not want to be a hyphenate, meaning Jewish American. The women in his life left big impressions on him. His grandmother Victoria was a big character. She was incredibly witty and used an ear trumpet but let her deafness come and go as it pleased her. I love old ladies like that. His mother, Helen, was more cultured and reserved than the cores, who seemed to overwhelm the room. George was completely devoted to his mother. He would always get very excited if he had the chance to speak about her. He called her the family beauty. She liked to dress up and pretend to be different characters for him. Helen really gave him a reference point for little mannerisms of women that other directors failed to pick up on. As a young man, people noted how courtly he was, always giving little gifts and showering people with compliments. He could also get extremely enthusiastic about a subject, which was infectious. Everyone else just got hyped up off of him. Like most teenagers, he was very sensitive about his looks, and this lasted his entire life. He was about 5 foot 8 and a half. The half was very important. He wore wire rim glasses and was a little on the thick side. Later on, he and Spencer Tracy bonded over their self-esteem issues. Apparently, when Tracy told his dad and girlfriend he wanted to act, They just told him he'd never make it in Hollywood because he didn't look like an idol. Well, He sure showed them, freaking jerks. Although he was involved in the drama club in high school, George would play hooky and skip class at least once a week to go to Broadway shows with his two best friends, Stella and Morty. This is where he begins his love of actresses. And if you think about it, a lot of his movies are about actresses. Geez, like five of them. When he graduated in 1917, his family expected him to become a lawyer like his father and uncle. So when he told them he wanted to become a Broadway director, that was a note from them. He was the only male grandchild, but they couldn't stop him. He starts off as an assistant stage manager, then stage manager. Even though his duties were menial at this phase in his career, all of the actors noticed his high energy and ability to help out in the chaos of the backstage. Helen Hayes said that George's very best trait was his enthusiasm. In 1923, he had the chance to work with Somerset Mom, who told him, when you write easily, you don't mind the cuts. George kept that in mind when the editors chopped his work all up to hell later on. The first actress he takes under his wing is Frances Howard. He makes her over her hair, makeup, clothes, the whole shebang. She doesn't have much of a career because in 1925, she ends up marrying Sam Goldwyn, the G of MGM. She really doesn't need to work after that. 1925 is also the year George starts directing. Nothing major, eight to nine plays that ran, at most, four months each. Although George pampered his actresses, he was known to yell and throw temper tantrums while directing, seemingly like most directors do. And I don't know how many times I read this, but George had a extremely foul mouth. Like, I'm not even gonna start repeating some of the things he said. And coming for me, that's really something. He also starts moving up in the social world. Ethel Barrymore becomes a lifelong pal. Most of the friends George has, he keeps them forever. Friendships are of enormous importance to me, George said. There is one thing about friendship, and that is you must maintain the relative position of the first meeting. When I first met Ethel Barrymore, I fell on my face. We became good friends. She was very dear to me, but when she stayed here, it was always the same. She'd contradict me, she'd tell me, go here, go there. And then there are people I meet And they're young, and you always think of them that way, no matter how distinguished and successful they become in the future. For New Year's Eve, he throws a big party, and on the guest list was Helen Hayes and George Gershwin. Not too shabby. The year also brought him his biggest success on Broadway in the form of The Great Gatsby. I mean, it wasn't a huge success, because if it had been, he would have stayed on Broadway and not gone to Hollywood, and therefore I would not be talking about him at all. So it's a good thing his stage career only lasted five years. Something interesting to note is during this time, George was fired from the play Coquette, which is about a southern belle, so just keep that in the back of your head when I mention the next and last time he gets fired from something. When Hollywood finally called, George took a job because Broadway meant being broke and that just wouldn't do for him. At this point in time, he was very New Yorky, meaning that he thought he would hate L.A. and thought movies were commerce, not art, like the theater. Well, guess who friggin' loved L.A.? Like I said, George was a little on the thick side at this point in time, and as someone who's built like that, wearing layers is for the devil. I hate it, and so did George, so that alone made California superior in his mind. He started out apprenticing, so no screen credit, but he made $600 a week. He was living at the Villa Carlotta across from the Chateau Elysee. Both buildings are still around, but the Chateau Elysee is now the fancy-smancy celebrity center for Scientology. I guess I'm glad that it's still here, but why does it have to be Scientology? After his apprenticeship ends, George gets a new contract with Paramount for thousand dollars a week, and his agent is good old Myron Selznick, who he met through his neighbor and new pal David O. Selznick. Joe Mankiewicz said this of George's early days. I met George when most people met George. He was young and pudgy, just another bright Jewish director who had a stock company in Rochester, I think. But I don't know what George did in New York, whereas out here, within almost six months it seems, he became a legend. He seemed to have arisen in Hollywood. His first screen credit is for All Quiet on the Western Front. And in case you were not forced to read All Quiet on the Western Front in school, that was a World War I story. Unlike practically every director, George's favorite thing to do was make screen tests. If you don't believe me, go watch the making of Gone with the Wind. It's like an hour of just screen tests that George did. Anyway, Lou Ayers said he disliked working with George back then because he was, quote, too cerebral. Probably why women liked working with him. Why is being smart a bad thing, Lou? Riddle me that, dude. The next movie George does he has to get babysat by Lubitsch because Paramount needed to speed up production. When the film was released, it's so good that Lubitsch says he wants credit for it. The studio tells George and tried to soften it by offering him a nice little picture to do next. Well, George sued them for breach of contract. In the end, he settled for lesser billing on that film and had his contract torn up with Paramount. In 1932, he signs a new contract with RKO because David O. Selznick is over there. George really, really loved the lengthy collaborations of filmmaking, and he was super good at delegating. He let the cameramen do their thing, he stayed out of the editing room. He apparently delegated so much that it seemed as though he was hardly working. He once asked a screenwriter for advice on directing his first film, and the guy said, Don't give away the secret. Directing is the easiest job in the world. Thank you, random screenwriter guy. I agree with you. I know a lot of people love to worship directors, and I honestly don't get it. Give the credit to the screenwriters. They're the ones creating something from nothing. This is also the year George buys a house on six acres of land above Sunset Boulevard. At the time, it cost $10,000, but with 2020 inflation, that's still only $187,000. It shouldn't surprise anyone that Billy Haynes did all of the interior design. I have photos up on my Instagram, but I suppose the best description of it is Roman Villa with a Hollywood Regency twist. A fun bit of trivia is that the woman who landscaped his house was also used later on to help design Tara and Gone with the Wind. Oh, and good news, the house is still there. If you know Sunset Boulevard, it's northwest of the Roxy. The couple that currently owns it also own the Ivy restaurant. And just like at work, George delegated expenses to his household manager, Elsa Schroeder. She took care of household stuff, his income, investments, stocks, everything for over 30 years. Before George started his famous parties, Irene Selznick threw the parties that were closest to what George would do. Meaning elegant dinner parties filled with sparkling personalities. A little info on Irene. Her daddy was Louis B. Mayer, and she married David O. Selznick. She was a very, very smart lady and ended up producing plays on Broadway in her later years. Her autobiography, A Private View, is exceptional reading. It was said that if you could bring George to your dinner party, you were in. First of all, he was a wonderful speaker, very funny, and he told marvelous stories. It also didn't hurt that David and George were extremely close. Marcella Rabwin was David's secretary and explained their dynamic. When I say David and George were best friends, I mean there was a love between them. There was a mutual dependence, there was a respect. They were both such charmers. They were both witty, they were both bright, they understood each other. Things were unspoken between them. They were always laughing together. That was an important part of their friendship. What's important to note is that they looked like they could be brothers. Of course, their mothers disagreed with this. But seriously, David and George looked more alike than David and his actual brother Myron. The first movie George did with David was What Price Hollywood, which was basically the trial version of A Star is Born, also done by Selznick. Well, the original at least, we'll get to the second one in a bit. Because of working with David, George is allowed to be involved with picking scripts and getting to help the writers work out any kinks they might have in their stories. I don't know how much I would like that. Both David and George thought they were would-be writers and called it all hours to make script changes. If you only know one thing about David O. Selznick, it is that he was the most prolific memo writer in Hollywood history. To drive my point home, there's a book called Memo from David O. Selznick. The book is a selection of memos, a selection, and runs 632 pages. Selznick truly terrorized his writers. Here's an example from Sidney Howard last night selznick said to me could you let me see a rewrite on that ballroom scene sure says i how do you want it rewritten i don't know says he i haven't read it yet i would slam my face into a typewriter if that was my boss how totally obnoxious it was said to have q direct your script was emblematic of your importance like having viton luggage or that table at Ciro's. Once the script was done, George would not mess around with the dialogue, and literally clung to the script, even chewing on it if he got nervous while directing. When George met Catherine Hepburn, he did his usual, got her hair cut, and sent her to makeup. Hepburn was one of the few who George wouldn't allow anyone to shit talk about. If he heard anyone besides himself speaking poorly about her, they were never allowed at another party. Catherine would stay at his house all the time. There was a story that she and George were chatting away and she excused herself to change clothes. Mid-conversation, who does that? Upon her return, George would dramatically stop and (gasps) catch his breath, because seeing her in a new outfit was apparently thrilling. I don't think I would ever classify Katherine Hepburn's style as thrilling, but I'm glad he got a kick out of it. Between dinner at eight and Gone with the Wind, George got a reputation for being a woman's director. MGM was the first to advertise George with that title. He complained about being typecast, but he dealt best with independent, victimized, and or passionate women. One very astute thing George did was to make sure he had women screenwriters on 6 out of 10 of the pictures he made during this time. He wanted to make sure the women on the screen seemed true to life, and if anything didn't jive with him, he would send the script over to a friend to make sure nothing was demeaning to women. One of George's friends explained it like this. George was good with women because he was a fairy. Fairies are trusted by women because they're gentle and they aren't going to jump on them. Continuing with this theme, Joe Mankiewicz said, The women adored him simply because they felt at ease, and women by and large did not feel at ease in that era. For example, you had directors like Bill Wellman, Victor Fleming, and George Stevens. Wellman, for example, had a wooden finger made just so he could goose women on set. That would get a big laugh from the gaffers and the crew high up on the scaffolding. I think women in the earlier days, before they became important, had a pretty tense time with the masculine directors. I would have shoved that finger right up Wellman's ass. So for those of you who don't understand why a lot of women prefer the company of gay men, that is the perfect example. It is nice to work in an environment where no one is trying to grab you all the goddamn time. I wouldn't actually know what that's like because I get sexually harassed every day I go to work, but I imagine it's sensational working in a safe environment. (laughs) Wow, just thinking about the job I hate has me all worked up. Let me refresh my drink and I'll be right back. Moving on, Billy Haynes was the one who introduced George to Hollywood gay society and was also the link to his friendship to Joan Crawford. George wasn't closeted. He was just playing by the rules at the time. This is how he did it. He threw parties at his house, and no one turned down the invitation. Since he normally worked six days a week, Sunday was party day, just like when he was a kid. Ladies were allowed in the afternoon for brunch. The flowers were gorgeous, the food was excellent, and he wasn't much of a drinker, so maybe there was wine. The only studio head ever allowed was Selznick, and his guests were expected to contribute to the conversation, have a little witticism, or at the very least, pay attention. Political talk was banned, but gossip definitely was approved. George was a huge gossip, and the spicier the better. My kind of guy. Seating arrangements went like this. George is at the head of the table, newer guests next to him, regular crowd is further away because they know what's going on. He also had two intimate circles of friends. Sometimes they would overlap, but they were the Olympians, famous or important people, and the chief unit, meaning his main gaze. Sunday night, was for men only. George's pool parties were the gay mecca. There were gay bars on Hollywood Boulevard, but it wasn't like how it is now. Like, no go-go dancers or drag queens. Well, sometimes drag queens, but still, it's not like going to Weehill. You had to be careful because the Vice Squad was super lame and they would arrest you just for the hell of it. George, maybe, probably, got arrested one night. Not because he actually did anything, but some guys started roughing him up, so he got arrested. Everything was cleared up by the studios, but he never ever spoke of it, not even to his closest pals. It just became safer for him to cruise at home. His friends would bring along tricks, meaning men that were paid, or people would show up with letters of recommendation from a friend. There was definitely a rotation of smoking hot dudes each week. The rules were, if you brought the guy, you got the last dance, but phone numbers could be traded for later on. Please note that just because you were a gay guy does not mean you were automatically allowed at his parties. It was an exclusive club, so of course people got pissy about being excluded. Welcome to Hollywood, baby. Them's the breaks. If you watched Hollywood on Netflix, this is what the pool parties were based on. Except there were not any orgies going on. Sorry. My hot take is that Ryan Murphy aspires to be like George. They both have a group of friends they prefer to work with. And they like to help out actresses who may be considered box office poison or just overlooked for no good reason. That is just my unsolicited opinion. David Selznick left MGM and started his own production company and was 100% sure his pal would follow him. Then Irving Thalberg started wooing him to stay at MGM. His agent, Myron, made sure George is the first contract employee at the new Selznick International Pictures, but also got a deal with MGM for one picture a year, doing a little double dip. The only movie he does that's a little iffy during this time is Sylvia Scarlet. It's a little bit, like, gender bendy, so people don't really get it. Tandro Berman, the producer of that picture at RKO, said, I never want to do another picture with either of you again. The failure didn't affect George, but Catherine was dubbed box office poison. Don't worry, George is gonna help her out. In 1937, George starts shooting screen tests for Gone with the Wind. He's in heaven because he can be fussy about the hair and wardrobe and gets to deal with his friend Tulula Bankhead while she throws a fit because how dare they make her do a screen test. It should surprise no one that he was rooting for his other friend to get the role of Scarlet. Could any of you see Catherine Hepburn in that role? Neither could anyone else. While he's waiting for anything to be ready to shoot for that movie, he completes Holiday and Zaza. That annoys David because he still has to pay George to do nothing for Gone with the Wind. It's not George's fault. If there's no lead picked out, what can he do? And hell, the script at that point was 400 pages long, which would make it like a six-hour movie. As a huge Gone with the Wind fan, I would totally watch the hell out of that. So, their friendship is a little shaky at this point for a few reasons. Besides the one I just mentioned, David thought his biggest failure to date was not finding the correct Scarlett. But this was actually George's job, therefore George's failure. Also, David is being really sloppy about having affairs, and George was really good pals with David's wife Irene, so that's a little weird. I honestly would love to know how David had the time to have any affairs. Oh yeah, he's all jacked up on Mountain Dew! Actually, he's jacked up on Benzedrine, which makes it so he does not need to sleep. These pills make him neurotic, even more of an egomaniac, and thus begins to slide into his self-destructive behaviors. They finally do find Scarlett, and that's through Myron, who was Vivian Lee's husband's agent. So he really saved the day on that one. The public had already demanded Clark Gable play Brett Butler. Some people say that Clark was pissy because the show wasn't all about him, and he didn't want a woman's director directing him. It's a woman's movie. Why the hell would you want a dude bro directing it? I have never understood that stupid idea. I am now going to tell you the reason why George left the Gone with the Wind set. Remember last week when I told you Carol distanced herself from her gay friends, mainly Billy Haynes, because Clark wasn't comfortable with them? This is why. If you don't want me to ruin any image you have of Clark Gable, please just skip ahead one to two minutes. I will not be offended. Are you ready for this? Cause I'm gonna spill some tea. Now, I've read this story reported in three to four heavily researched books. So, while it might not be 100% true, where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, when George's friends found out he was directing Clark, one of them said, oh, George is directing one of Billy's old tricks. Apparently, years ago, when Clark was a nobody, he and Billy shared a drunken evening. He wasn't trade, meaning Clark wasn't doing it for money. It was just a very bohemian sort of evening. What I don't understand is Billy Haynes was very good friends with Kara Lombard and Joan Crawford, both of who uh, slept with Clark. Carol never seemed to acknowledge this story, as far as I can gather. But in her later years, good old Joni said, yeah, this is true. So, of course, after that outburst, the old story makes its way around the Hollywood circles like it's a freaking wildfire. Clark is not pleased about this. He went to Billy and said, if he heard any more of that talk, he would beat the shit out of him. Then, one afternoon, George, Gable, and of course, micromanager David Selznick are all on the set getting ready to film. And Gable says, I can't do this. I can't do this scene. And someone asked him, What's wrong? And he flipped out and he said, I can't go on with this picture. I won't be directed by a fairy. I have to work with a real man. Absolute silence on the set, except for the footsteps of George walking off the soundstage. Gable did not show up to work the next day. This all happened in February of 1939, which was the same month george's contract was up for renewal david was a little bitch and couldn't do the hard part himself so he sent some random studio henchmen to tell george his contract would not be renewed with selznick international ever the gentleman george didn't yell and he didn't make a scene he just went home and he ate multiple cakes i'm serious and i also really feel that george told the press that he quit because the script was inadequate one month after the Gone with the Wind debacle, George is directing the women. Absolutely no men in that movie, just ladies. It's a genius. Why they keep remaking this movie is beyond my comprehension. Unless you're going to cast all drag queens, this movie will never work outside of 1939. The dialogue is so caustic and bitchy. They're the only ones who can do it any sort of justice. The first thing George does is the famous photo of all the women in the cast linking arms and him in the middle. I will post it on Instagram it is beautiful you've probably seen it what I found interesting is when he was asked about the women years later George spoke a little about the actresses then stopped and said quote but didn't you think the clothes were perfectly dreadful Adrian was trying to knock them dead a tacky period the early 40s mind you all those very fancy hairdos and broad shoulders I think Adrian was trying too hard Adrian was a very famous and fabulous costume designer at MGM. He and George went toe to toe on Greta Garbo's last picture. George loved Garbo. I know, shocking that he would love a uber high maintenance lady. Apparently, George let her wear her own frumpy Dumperton wardrobe instead of the beautiful costumes Adrian had made. Adrian was so pissed he left MGM and opened up his own shop at the old Victor Hugo's in Beverly Hills. And we talked about that last week, boom. George does help bring Katherine Hepburn's career back by doing the Philadelphia story at MGM. Obviously they didn't want Hepburn in that lead role because of her super sketchy track record at this point. They wanted Joan Crawford, I'd watch that. Howard Hughes apparently owned some of the rights to the script and he walked his germaphobic ass into Mayer's office and told him Hepburn's getting the lead or you're not getting the script. Hetburn's career was rock solid after this point in time, so everyone can just breathe easy. She'll be fine. I came across this quote from producer Gottfried Reinhardt, who worked with George on Camille and Two-Faced Woman. He said, quote, We certainly didn't get on professionally at all. He was the type of man that I didn't really go for. His homosexuality, even though I have many good friends who were homosexuals, mm -hmm, his homosexuality bothered me, perhaps above all because he was so ugly and that made it ludicrous. You know I immediately stopped reading and googled this guy's dumb ass. He was not hot, ever. I did a deep dive. Trust me. If you redo that entire sentence and replace homosexual with straight, it would work much better for Gottfried. The thought that any woman would want to bang him is just as ludicrous. What a douche. With comments being made like that, George was still very sensitive about his looks and weight. So in the 1940s, he starts working out and doing extreme diets. I don't think he did diet pills, which were basically speed back then, but if he went to his friend's house for dinner, he would bring the food he could eat with him in a little bag. During World War II, he was in the service, and he helped make instructional films for the Army, and was stationed in New York. He really wanted a higher rank, like the other directors who famously went to war. His FBI files say he was declined officer ranking because he was gay, and J. Edgar Hoover did not like gays. Even though he was gay, what the hell? Post-World War II, his group changed a bit. There was an influx of people 10 to 20 years younger. He hated being alone and was almost always with an entourage. A lot of nights, he would come home from work, shower, get in his PJs, and just pack a carload full of guys and go over to Fanny Bryce's house for a game of gin rummy. That is the best sleepover ever. I would love to go to that. Obviously, George wasn't the only rich and famous gay man in town. There was another rival Sunday party going on. Of course, both hosts thought they were the center of the gay universe. That other man was Cole Porter. George's parties were more formal, and there was no music. While Cole's parties were super laid back, people were drinking, playing Password, and of course there was fantastic music at Cole Porter's parties, some people who were smart would uh, double dip. On Sundays, they would go to Cole's in the afternoon, sneak out, and go to George's for the evening. I don't need any like loud music at a party, but God, I cannot imagine going to a party without music. Come on, George, what's going on, man? Uh, ooh. The late '40s, early '50s, George hits the sweet spot with his movies. After he did *Adam's Rib*, everybody knows sophisticated comedies are his thing. Harry Cohen paid a million dollars for the rights to do *Born Yesterday*. But did not want Judy Holiday, who made the play famous on Broadway, doing the movie. He called her that fat Jewish broad. Harry Cohen, always such a doll. He wanted Lucille Ball for the role because she owed him a picture. If you listen to the Desi episode, this is when she's pregnant with her daughter and takes a crappy little nothing role instead just to get her contract over with. She actually might have been really good in this, but things worked out just fine for her. George really connected with Judy. She was another makeover of his. They connected over weight issues because she hated being overweight. I mean, who enjoys it? I don't know. She ended up winning the best actress Oscar over Betty Davis in All About Eve and Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. That was a tough, tough year. Like, oof. was she really better than Betty Davis and Gloria Swanson? Send me a message on my socials and tell me who your vote would have gone to. George turned down the original A Star is Born because it was too close to What Price Hollywood. Sid Luft, Judy Garland's producer husband, wanted Cary Grant as Norman Maine, and knew the way to get him was through George, so George was hired to do his first musical and color picture. Cary did not want to do the role, but George said, let's just read through the script. Afterwards, if you still don't want to do it, I won't force you. So George plays every other character, and Cary just reads Norman. He was marvelous. George told him it would be a part of a lifetime for him. Carrie said, "I agree. That's why I'm not going to do it." Apparently, Norman was too close to the part of Carrie that he wanted to keep hidden. Judy Garland basically was the real-life Norman Maine, so like, get over yourself, Carrie. George never forgave Carrie Grant for that ever. Sinatra and Bogart were brought up as options, both booze hounds. Either one would have been a really interesting choice to watch. James Mason was cast, and no one really knows why. Filming with Judy was obviously a hot mess. She'd call in sick, and the next day there'd be a bit in Luella Parsons' column about her singing at some nightclub on the Sunset Strip. If she got time off to rest, she came back worse than before. George told Katherine Hepburn he no longer trusted Judy. She burned him too many times, and was super unprofessional, but he didn't know what to do. When Judy had to film the scene where she talks about Norman's alcoholism, George got down really close to her and said quietly, you know what this is about. You really know this. Essentially, she's talking to herself about herself. Go watch this. It's like five minutes. You will cry. It is worth it. He made her do it twice in a row, just in case the sound was off on one of them. He was so thrilled with the way it came out. He told her, you really scared the hell out of me. Judy said, oh, that's nothing. Come over to my house any afternoon. But I only do it once at home. The movie took nine months to finish. A Star is Born, nine months, eh, eh, eh. George didn't throw Judy under the bus about the filming taking forever. He just said, maybe it's because I'm a slow director. James Mason apparently didn't like this film because this version, the focus is all on the girl. Shut up, James Mason. On your best day, you cannot hold a candle to Judy. This movie was the best reviews of George Cukor's life, and, of course, Warner Brothers just cut the hell out of the movie and did the worst editing job possible. It didn't win any Oscars, not even for the best song. The best song was Three Coins in a Fountain. Go listen to The Man That Got Away, that's the song Judy sang in A Star Is Born, then go listen to Three Coins in a Crappy Fountain. I would love to see which one you think is better. I told you George liked to work with problematic ladies, so he worked with Marilyn Monroe twice. Once, they actually finished the damn movie. The second time, she freaking died. She always wanted bigger roles. Her acting coach was a major ass ache. George said Lee Strasberg was awful, worse than David O. Selznick at the peak of his craziness. In the middle of Let's Make Love, Nikita Khrushchev shows up and wants a tour of Fox. So George is tasked with having to escort Marilyn Monroe and Judy Garland to the luncheon. That must have been like juggling knives on fire dipped in acid. Khrushchev gave a speech and bitched the entire time about not being able to go to Disneyland. That was his biggest concern. I know I've listed off a ton of movies, and you might think, George has totally won an Academy Award for one of these. No, not yet. So, Jack Warner sat next to George on an airplane and asked him, How'd you like to direct My Fair Lady for me? And George said, Yes, I would love to, and you are making a very intelligent choice. Initially, Warner wanted Cary Grant and Jimmy Cagney in the leading male roles, but George was still mad at Cary, and Cagney already retired and turned it down. They were worried that Rex Harrison was a little too old to play a leading man. So Rex sent George some nudes. Well, a newspaper or a wine bottle covered up his business, but it worked and he got the job. Cecil Beaton did the costumes. If you've ever watched The Crown, he's the photographer who uses the very flowery language right before he snaps the pictures of the queen. Like, glorious Gloriana, that sort of thing. Beaton was very flamboyant, if that didn't just give you a hint, and George did not enjoy him. He thought he was far too pretentious. But in the end, both George and Cecil won their Oscars. Joan Crawford was the one who got to present George with his, which was a nice touch. Certainly, he would have wished it was for a movie that meant more to him, but he was thrilled to bits about the award nonetheless. In the 1960s, his old pal started dying off. He wasn't afraid of death and always visited ill friends trying to cheer them up. He said he should title his autobiography, which he never wrote, A Funeral Every Sunday. Clearly, his muse was Katherine Hepburn. They ended up making ten movies together by the end of their lives. Something I found odd was he was not honored with an AFI award in the 1980s either. They were passing those out like candy to the old guard. I'm really surprised he never got one. He supposedly had money troubles later in life, but when he passed away in 1984 from a heart attack, he had a net worth of $2.3 million. So I, I don't know what that was about. Unfortunately, no one big showed up to his funeral the closest thing george ever had to a long-term partner was a man named george towers they met in the late 1950s and towers was a goddamn adonis i'll put pictures up he was fine he was brought as a guest and george broke his own rules keeping towers for himself and pissing off the guy who brought him i should tell you that george towers was not gay he was just hot and broke so do something strange for a piece of change George paid for Towers to go to art school, then paid for him to go to law school at USC, where he graduated in 1967. And of course, George got him a job in Beverly Hills practicing law. Towers eventually married a lady and had a son that George became the godfather of. After George's death, Towers was the trustee and executor of the will. So while he waited for probate court to rule on everything, he charged himself hundreds of thousands of dollars before inheriting most of the cash, the house, all the Billy Haynes furniture. Hollywood memorabilia, letters, and the Oscar. Sugar Babies take note, George Towers is the king of I'll give you a thrill if you leave me in that will. George is buried next to the first actress he took under his wing, Frances Howard, and her husband, Sam Goldwyn. Frances was always jealous of the attention George gave Katherine Hepburn, and wanted her BFF all to herself, so in death she finally got it. George once said that they should put he made an awful lot of tests on his gravestone. Instead of that, there is nothing. Not for him, not for Francis, not for Sam. It's just a blank slab at Forest Lawn. In a town where getting your name on the billing is the most important thing, I highly doubt a blank headstone is what George, Francis, or Sam would have wanted. Remember, George went to court with Paramount over proper billing in the early days, so this just doesn't make sense. It kind of rubs me the wrong way. So if you know anything about this, let me know. Because I am very curious why it's all blank. The real matter at hand is, do we want to party with George? I really like George. Watching him speak on Dick Havitt interviews is always fun because he is a fabulous storyteller. But he doesn't like to drink. Not that being an alcoholic is a requirement for us. But he also doesn't like parties with music. I have no idea. This is my first wild card. I'm going to leave it up to you. Send me a message. Even if you hear this five years from now, seriously, I will respond. I'd like to know, would you like to party with George? Next week, we'll be looking at a quick wit. But will they be fun enough for our party? Come back next week to find out. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Party. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, tell every single person you know. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Anchor or whatever you use to listen. See you next week.